Part you here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Compose Melbourne is a new functional programming conference focused on developing the community and bringing typed functional programming to a wider audience. It is a two-day event being held in Melbourne, Australia on the 29th and 30th of August of 2016. The first day features a single track of presentations, followed by a second day of workshops and an unconference. It is a new sister conference of the New York-based Compose Conference. ElixirConf is taking place August 31st through September 2nd in Orlando, Florida. The two days of conference are on September 1st and 2nd, with an optional training day on August 31st. The conference includes five training courses, which provide six hours of hands-on instruction. Visit ElixirConf.com to register and to find out more. Full Stack Fest will be held in Barcelona on September 5th through the 9th. It will be composed of two main blocks with a gap day in between. The full agenda is out, and they will have industry leaders on stage from companies such as Netflix, Microsoft, Spotify, Pusher, Erling, Twitter, Google, and many more. And make sure to visit fullstackmaster.fullstackfest.com to check out Fullstackfest's bot that will chat with the community. Visit 2016.fullstackfest.com to find out more and to register. The Erling User Conference is coming up in Stockholm, Sweden. The conference will be taking place on the 8th and 9th of September, with tutorials on the 7th, and training running the 6th through the 16th of September. With keynotes by Fred Herbert and Simon Peyton Jones, a fireside chat with Jane Wallerud and the Erling co-inventors Mike Williams, Joe Armstrong, and Robert Verding, and the rest of the lineup can be found on their website as well. And all attendees are entitled to participate in complimentary tutorials on the 7th of September, sponsored by Ericsson and Kista. Early bird tickets are available, and get a 10% discount on the conference when you use the code FUNCTIONALGEEKRY10. Visit www.erling-factory.com slash EUC2016 to register and to find out more. Strange Loop is sold out, but a number of surrounding events still have tickets available. ElmConf is taking place on September 15th, and tickets and information can be found at elm-conf.us. Rakicon is on September 18th, and tickets and information can be found at con.bracket-lang.org. PWLConf 2016 is the first full-day Papers We Love conference, co-located with the pre-conference events at StrangeLoop in St. Louis, Missouri on September 15th. PWLConf will build upon, and further, the unique experiences that the traditional Papers We Love chapter events provide. The conference intends to bring academia and industry within reach of one another, hoping to foster stronger collaboration and mutual appreciation across respective fields. Tickets to PWLConf for $40 with an optional donation and free if you're a student or recipient of a Strange Loop Opportunity Grant. Keep an eye out for updates on PWLConf.org as speakers are still being confirmed. Lambda World will be taking place on September 30th and October 1st of 2016. Lambda World is the longest functional programming conference in Spain and Portugal and one of the biggest in Europe. They expect more than 350 attendees to gather together in their awesome venue an old tobacco factory in Cadiz, downtown. The focus of Lambda World is to bring up together developers around functional programming, no matter which language they use it for. Visit www.lambda.world to sign up for early bird tickets, CFP info, and to find out more. The 2016 edition of Scala I.O. is coming up. This year's edition will take place in Lyon, France, on the 27th and 28th of October. Scala I.O. is a nonprofit, community-driven conference with a strong sharing spirit. With five different tracks, any functional geek will find something interesting, from beginner to advanced user. General functional programming subjects and other languages will be present as well. 
The regular tickets are still available for 100 euros. The call for proposals is already open and closes Sunday, September 4th, September 2016. Visit Scala.io for more information and to register. Codemesh is coming up again, taking place the 3rd and 4th of November with tutorials on the 2nd of November. Visit Codemesh.io to submit your talks, register, and to sign up for email updates to find out more as information becomes available. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event this December. The unconf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked into the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. And if you know of any other conference around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Rose Proctor. And this week with us, we have Lars Hubel. Lars, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, I don't mind. So I'm currently a PhD student in Munich, and I'm with the lab for logic and verification. That's what it's called. And at our group, we develop a piece of software, which is called Isabel, and it's a theorem prover. And I think there'll be some opportunity to explain what that actually means. But I started using Isabel about four years ago. And it's really about actually trying to prove that the programs you wrote do what they are supposed to do. But of course, that wasn't the first thing I ever was exposed to. So I think I started programming seriously pretty much 10 years ago. And I basically started with Java because that was the language we learned in school back then. And at that time, I dabbled a little bit with C++ before. And then after I've seen Java, I thought, whoa, this is the greatest thing ever. And I'm going to program in this language for my whole life. And this is so awesome. And then I went to university and I got exposed to Haskell because of a seminar. So the professor of that seminar is now actually my advisor. And he gave a couple of students a couple of topics related to functional programming. And I got the topic monads and IO in Haskell. And at that time, I thought, well, this is stupid. Why would you do all these things just to get some input-output going? And I kind of didn't understand that. And then for some other thing at university, I started learning Scala. And then some pieces kind of started moving into place. And I had a look at Haskell again and thought, wait, that actually makes sense. And then I came back to Scala and thought, okay, I can actually use Scala as a functional language and not as a better Java. And things started making sense. And that's when I kind of started to get interested in actually improving the correctness of my program. So I now starting to use this functional paradigm where I more describe what I want and not say how I want to do it. And then the computer does it in some way, the compiler does it in some way. And then I wanted to look at how can I improve the correctness of my programs even further. And that's why I started taking a course in Isabel. And yeah, at some point, the professor just asked, wouldn't you be interested in doing a PhD in the group and working with Isabel full-time, essentially? And I said, yes. So that's why I ended up there. And you came across the radar as a volunteer to talk about some of these other languages 
because on Twitter I asked about what some of the stuff people would like to hear from. And you mentioned Isabel and never crossed my radar before, so I had to check it out, see what it was, and take a peek, and it looked pretty interesting. So want to make sure we definitely cover that because looking at it, it looked like it was an ML and Scala-based language that's kind of a meta-language to do your proofs. Yep. But before we get into that, let's dig in a little deeper about some of your exposure. So you started with a little bit of C, C++, you said, into Java, loved it, got into Haskell from a course. What was yep. that like? Was that something that you kind of got immediately or you stumbled through and kind of didn't you mentioned the monads you didn't get it but were there other things that you got or you just really didn't get it at all until you came back to Scala so I really stumbled a lot actually what I found quite nice what I kind of understood very quickly was the way that you use functions for everything so back in school we had some very good math classes and we got exposed to a lot of some of the more advanced stuff so actually, that was quite natural to me. Just describe your program as a mapping from input to output. What I had problems with was that I was so used to object-oriented programming from Java that I completely did not understand what type classes were all about. And I was trying to abuse them in all sorts of ways. And then I thought, wait, actually, that doesn't work. And then I Googled for stuff. And then I found, you know, you can just enable this language extension in Haskell and you can do all these kinds of things. But as a beginner, you don't really know what you're doing, right? And GHC has a ton of these extensions, and I was trying all these out, and nothing really made sense to me. So I would say that was actually my biggest roadblock, that I had this OOP terminology in the back of my mind. and was trying to apply that to everything, and functions were great, but everything advanced from that. So, I mean, functional programming is great. You can compose functions, but you actually want to structure your programs, and in Haskell, use type classes or other things. And all that didn't make a lot of sense to me. And I just recently looked at some of my old Scala code, and it was completely horrible because it was also very Java-inspired. And I think what kind of helped me a lot was that in Scala, I could actually try to apply these Haskell concepts and kind of ease into them because I could still write some sort of OOP code in, in Scala, and it gave me kind of a transition strategy from that mindset to a more functional mindset. And then you mentioned Scala as well with that transition. You went back to Java for a while and then eventually picked up Scala, or you kind of took that in and Scala came soon after the heels of Haskell when you were exposed to it. And then how did you actually get exposed to Scala? Was that another coursework thing or was that something else? So I had to do Java for university classes. So that's what my main language was still well into my second and third year in university. And I had to learn Scala because that was some work I did. So essentially just a student job, essentially, as you would say. So essentially I did Java, I did all my major stuff with, with Java, all the assignments in university, and then at the side for a couple of hours per week, like eight or nine hours per week, the amount of work I had to do, learning Scala and applying some Scala stuff. And um, yeah, actually in actually my bachelor thesis, I still wrote a little bit of C++ code because I thought... Well, it can't be so bad, but because I was already getting used to Scala and the functional code, it actually, it actually, my, my C++ experience was way worse than what I had before I got into all these things. So I, I guess you could say it was uh, kind of developed kind of in parallel. So I had this one major thing where I had a Java, I, I knew how to do things there and took over and became the main thing. And then you get in, you start getting this experience and you said, 
just recently you look back and was disgusted with your code, which is a nice feeling to see that back and see, wow, I was really writing bad code. Look how far I've come. But what was that progression? Because you said that progression and more of what triggered that progression of taking that look back at Haskell and then getting that aha moment. Was that other coworkers or just checking out the ideas in Haskell again once you started seeing some of the stuff in Scala? What was that transition that kind of made Scala more functional than the object-oriented side? Well, I guess I think it was a bit of both. So the supervisor I had back then, he was very good at giving feedback and he was very thorough. So it was quite unlike anything I've seen before. So I've coded for payment before, but this was the first job where I actually got very detailed reviews. So whenever I wrote some piece of code, my supervisor would actually print it out, you know, like on a piece of paper and would look through it and make all sorts of say, oh, you know, why don't you use a val here? You use this mutable variable here. That's unneeded. Just turn it to recursion, right? And he gave me these very detailed ideas so that I could start to see some patterns where I used use a variable and a while loop before, and I could turn it into a tail recursive function, for example. And the other thing, of course, was the book I read on Scala, Functional Programming in Scala, which is the book by Odersky and Werners and Spoon. And that book is very good. I really liked it as my introduction to Scala. And this book also shows some patterns how you can get started with functional programming. And it doesn't assume very much about your background. If I remember correctly, it assumes that you're somewhat familiar with programming in general, but it doesn't care that much if it's Python or Java or whatever it is. And I guess you could say it's a bit of both. And the work forced me to actually rewrite my code so that it would fit the expectations. And it made me start to see some patterns. And of course, the book I used provided me with some more insight in why it's actually done that way. And you start to get this insight. Did you say you went back and looked at Haskell a second time after starting to get this insight with Scala? Or were you just able to connect those two pieces together that says, okay, I've got this insight. Oh, and I remember Haskell. Now I can fold that back in. What was that going as we lead down the path of wanting to be able to be more assured about your programs and eventually get into where you're wanting to write proofs about them? Help me understand that evolution. Yeah, so I definitely did go back to Haskell. So there's actually a funny story about this. So this was also from university. That was some kind of, I don't know what you would call it in English, probably some sort of like a retreat or something where you would go and have some talks somewhere remote and also do some hiking. And But you know, anyway, the, the main focus was on giving, delivering talks on specific topics. And I had chosen a course on optimization. And one of the tasks in this class was you had to deliver your talk, but also then you had to deliver a program. And I think the problem I had to solve was the traveling salesperson problem. So it was teams of two students, and we had completely free choice of language. And I was there with a friend who I knew very well from my home university. And he also was in the same class, which exposed me to Haskell. So he also got exposed to Haskell, and he actually also liked it. And so we said, okay, let's do that in Haskell just to try out stuff we've learned before. And, you know, everyone else in the course was doing it in C or in Java or something. And also the professor was a little bit skeptical about us using Haskell. So it was a different professor than, than the one from my home university. But it actually went very well because 
using it on a real pro well okay it's still kind of a toy problem but for us it was very real it was the biggest program we've written in Haskell so far so it was definitely a very good experience and this really forced forced us to think very differently about how to solve the problem so we both learned java before so we knew how to we knew how we would have to tackle this problem in a different way in the kind of imperative mindset and then we just for the fun of it we just picked Haskell and thought okay let's prove to ourselves that we can actually you know try to f- rephrase the solution to this problem in a more functional way and actually worked out very well we managed to write this program in a couple of hours and it worked on the first try and this was kind of neat because in other languages or what i did before i usually had the problem that i would type in some code and then i would have no idea whether anything of that would work so i had always had to run it and try it on some examples write some tests or whatever and then check if it's actually working. And then if not, I would usually use NetBeans or Eclipse's debugger and step through the program and see what's actually wrong. By the way, this was also when I first learned Haskell. So like, why is there no debugger? You, you cannot use this language like that. Anyway, so when we wrote this program in Haskell, it actually turned out that once we got it to compile, it worked pretty well. And then we had, to, we had one bug in there. But to be fair, this was some sort of unclear specification. Anyway, so this really... I could say it opened my eyes that, you know, you can actually write programs where you could be reasonably certain that when you run them, they're actually correct. And in Haskell, you can get that because of a very sophisticated type system and some other things which actually help you in writing correct programs. So then when I saw Isabel for the first time, it was just like basically a natural progression. So you could say in Haskell, you're reasonably, or if you write Scala in a very functional way, you could be reasonably secure reasonably safe that your program actually does the right thing. And in Isabel, you can be absolutely sure that your program does the right thing. So I guess for me, I would say it's kind of a natural progression. If you're trying to make your program right, then you can use a language with, with, with rich tooling, with a good type checker, with all these tools, or you could even go farther and use additional tooling, which is just built for this very purpose that your program is right. So there's a couple of things I want to unpack there as you lead down that path. One, just a quick question of, you said you were confused because Haskell had no debugger. Is that something that makes sense to you now? Is that something that you still wish for? Or what is that perspective change now that you've done more with it? I think I've changed my opinion on this multiple times now. And the same goes for Scala, by the way. So whenever I say Haskell now, it also applies to Scala. Because I also don't use a fancy IDE for Scala. So I think it was just the way I was used to it. So when writing Java, I would always use an IDE and the debugger would just sit there and it would help me debug my programs. And for Haskell, I first thought it would be the language would be useless because it didn't have these kind of tooling. And then I, you know, I realized that actually you don't need it very much. And this is still mostly true, I think. So for most of my day-to-day programming, I think I don't need a classic debugger. Although I have to admit that I do printf debugging. So in a sense, sometimes I would wish for these tools, but in retrospect, I think I need them, or at least I think I need them much less than I would need them in Java or other languages for that matter. And I've heard some people talk about it, but I'm not quite sure where it plays in with Haskell is in some other languages, you've got more of a REPL and you can then have the smaller functions and debug them through just a straight function call. 
Is that what you found in Haskell that helps do it? Or you just run your program and because that function is small enough, you can get away with just the printf? Yeah, the REPL is definitely a very important point. And I think I mostly ignored the Haskell REPL when I first learned it. And it's also a point where Scala helped me a lot because I think I started learning Scala basically just by looking at the REPL. So the Haskell REPL, it has some weird things where you can't easily... So if you're a beginner, right? So if you know your Haskell, those are not problems. But for example, you can't just write x equals 3 and expect the variable to get defined. Just as you would write it in a Haskell file, you would have to write let x equals 3. And I think I got frustrated at some point because it would be slightly different than what I would have to write in a Haskell file. And in Scala, it's actually very smooth, the REPL experience. Of course, it also has problems, but I think for a beginner, the Scala REPL is much better. And yes, I would also say that this kind of transformed the way I try to debug problems in my code. Because you have all these fancy build tools, and they can build your source files, and then they can actually drop you down to a REPL where you can interactively ask questions. And that was something I have never seen before. I didn't even know that existed. And you talk about moving into Isabel with these stronger constraints. And you're talking about applying it back into Scala. Is that something you took advantage of the very Haskell-less Scala? Or is that something that you just wrote your Scala being more pure? So as you go from a better Java to a more functional language, did you make that transition to using things like Scala Z and pull in a lot of the stuff inspired by Haskell? Or was that just, I'm going more pure and pulling this stuff out and may or may not be taking advantage of everything that the community has contributed back? Yeah, so Scala Z was definitely a factor in me getting involved in more functional Scala. And I don't actually remember how I got into this. I think I contributed to Scala Z at some point in 2011 or something like that, 2012. I don't recall exactly, but I can't really remember how I got into that. Probably because I so I hung around the Scala IRC channel very much back then. And I think many people always said, you know, you can use Scala for that. It has a function for that. It has these type classes. And yeah, I used it a lot um, in my early days. And I guess what one could say, it helped me improve my Scala code. So yeah, pretty much. I think. And then did you take advantage as we go down and become more concerned about expressibility and knowing that your program's right and being able to express that kind of stuff? Did you take advantage of Quick Check at all, or was it mainly just concerned with the types? And then you used Isabel once you saw Isabel for some of those kinds of proofs. When I started looking at Haskell and Scala, I had no idea about Quick Check or Scala Check at all. That came at a later point. And I think, I don't know how I could phrase it, but I think I would have called myself advanced beginner at this stage already before I even looked at Quick Check or Scala Check. I just didn't know about it. I think ScalaCheck is not mentioned in the edition of the Scala book I had. And then QuickCheck was also, I think it was only mentioned in very late in the Haskell book I had. So I actually wrote a lot of code in these languages before I knew about property testing. And did you really get into property testing or did you just make the jump to Isabel by the time you started to realize that QuickCheck and ScalaCheck were out there? Was that the transition has already happened? So I just use Isabel for that. Or do you take advantage of, where did that fit in on the timeline, if at all? I have to admit, I don't really know anymore. I don't really know. 
So the conservative answer is, so the answer which has to be correct is because Isabel also comes with a quick check equipped. So it can't be later than that. Because if you write a function in Isabel and then you state some property about it, it will automatically run quick check for you. So you can't help it, but have it run quick check. So I guess if I said no later than with learning Isabel, then it would be true. But I don't really remember whether I've seen quick check before that or not. And you get into Isabel, you're shown it by one of your professors. Yeah. When you come through and start thinking about that, I guess to set the stage, from what little I had seen is it's a theorem-proving language, but do you write your software in that language, or is that a language that takes advantage of your other software? So are you writing all your program in Isabel, or are you writing certain proofs about your program, and you write that in Isabel, but your program's still in whatever other language it is? Where does Isabel fall on that kind of language scale for being a theorem-proving language? So I think most people will actually write their programs in Isabel and then do proofs on them. And then there's a feature called Code Generator. So it takes your program, which you have written in Isabel, and then compiles it into Haskell or Scala or ML or OCaml. So there are four target languages there. And there are various facilities to adapt this, but I mean, let's just assume that you can write your program in Isabel and then have it generate code in an executable language and then compile that and actually run it. But Isabel is quite a big system and the maintainer of Isabel, he always uses this story or this tale about the blind man and the elephant, where you have these blind men trying to figure out what an elephant is and then all come to different conclusions. And it's rather apt because Isabel is such a big system, so we also have a facility to import programs from other languages into Isabel and then do proofs on them. For example, there's a very big project in Australia. They have a tool which imports C code into Isabel. Then you have a semantics of C in some sense, and then you can actually verify C programs. So you have an existing program and you can import it and make proofs. And then there's another colleague of mine who's working on extracting code from Isabel. So you write your program in Isabel. But the twist there is that you write your program in a non-executable fashion. So you can write pseudocode, essentially. So if you've seen a textbook on algorithms, you usually see algorithms like you pick any element from a set and then you do something and then you pick the next element from the set. But if you want to execute that, it's kind of difficult because a set has no order. So you would need to figure out in what order to do that. So he has some tools which will help you to refine that program into an executable program. And you can actually do imperative style programming there. So you write your program in Isabel in a very abstract fashion, like a mathematician would write it or like someone in a textbook would write it. And then semi-automatically, you refine that to an executable thing, which actually uses imperative features for performance. But while doing this whole pipeline, I guess I could say, every step of this is verified. So you know that the resulting imperative program is actually still satisfying the specification you wrote. And then you can take this executable program and also compile it down to something imperative, for example, using Haskell and state variables, something like that. So it's pretty big and um, you can very easily extend it with different ways. 
So that's why we're also Scala comes into play. So for example, there's last year, I did a proof of concept of importing Scala programs into Isabel. So you could actually do round trips. So you could have an existing Scala program imported in Isabel and then do some modifications, you know, whatever you want, and then export it back to Scala. So I think the summary here is you can both import and export a variety of things, depending on what your use case is. Okay. And I think that gives me a better picture of what it is, because just looking at the brief overview, I couldn't quite figure out from what I looked at it, whether it was a library that is a language you pull in in the same way that Quick Check or Scholar Check is, where you write it in a domain-specific language for proofs, or if it was its full language. So it, what you've just described to me is that it's a full language on its own that is a proper language and not just a domain-specific language for proofs. That's part of your other program. Yes, that's a fair assessment. So you have, as a user, if you download Isabel and you start it, then you will get to see an IDE. And then you can type in programs. So the language is called ISAR. And ISAR is an acronym for Intelligible Semi-Automatic Reasoning and also the name of the river, which goes through Munich. And the system is bootstrapped, so you have a very primitive base logic, which does very little, only natural deduction. And then on top of that, you can implement, or somebody has already implemented for you, a much richer logic, which is called HOL, high-order logic. It just means that you can argue about high-order programs. That's not quite right, but it's good for an intuition. And in that high-order logic, you can write your programs, you can do proofs, you can do all sorts of things. And the cool thing about Isabel is what sets it apart from other systems in the same domain is that it's very easily extensible. So, for example, if you're a researcher and you want to implement some backend language, so if you want to extend the system, you want to make it able to produce Java code, for example, or read Java code, it's actually very easy to extend that. You don't need to go down to the basics of the system. You don't need to meddle around, have to meddle around as a source code. It's just another application, another formalization you're doing. So you can open the IDE and then write essentially a library in it. And it does that by being able to embed. So you mentioned that Isabel is implemented in ML and Scala, and you can always embed ML code in this ESA language. So if you want to extend the system, you can just write some ML code. It can be as big as you like, and then the system will pick that up and edit. You can so essentially you can call you could call it a programming programmable language. So you can always add new control structures. You can add anything you like essentially. And then you made a semi-offhand comment in there about other languages in the same domain compared when you were talking about Isabel. What kind of languages are those, or what are some of the examples of some of the languages that? Isabel kind of aligned with because I've heard of other theorem provers like Cock or Agda or Idris where that's provable systems and then there's other kinds of stuff. So when looking at Isabel at a big picture, where does that fit in with languages? Yeah, I think Cock is probably the biggest competitor to Isabel. And it's actually also very old, just as Isabel. So I think the first version of Isabel was released in the mid 80s. And I think Coq wasn't very long after that. And they're both from the same tradition of so-called LCF-style provers. And LCF-style means that you have a very small kernel, which 
guarantees the logical soundness of your system, and then everything else is built on top of that. And if you have a high-level tool, then it has to justify all its actions against this kernel. And there are some other tools in the same tradition, so like Isabel and Cork, and then you also have other whole-based systems, or so other systems based on high-order logic. Um, Holite is was one example, and Hull 4, and there are a couple of others there. And then, of course, you mentioned Acta. And Acta is slightly different because it feels much more like a proper programming language. And Idris is even more so a proper programming language. So essentially, in Coq and in Isabel, you have special tools for making proofs easier. So you have a thing called tactics. Um, and the tactic is essentially a small program which helps you prove certain kinds of propositions. So for example, if you, yeah, if you want to do arithmetic, so if you, Let's make it very simple. Let's say you want to prove that m plus n is equal to n plus m if you have two natural numbers. So most of these LCF scale systems, they have these tactics and they will allow you to discharge that. So for example, you can just write down, prove that by induction over m and then do some automated tools and it's done. In Acta, you always have to write out the recursion to prove that. And of course, it also has tools for you to help you write that. But in the end, you always have to write that out. And Idris is also a proper programming language like Acta, but it, it also has this, no, this notion of tactics. Um, but it's if you look at Idris, you will find that it's a lot more suitable to actually writing code which can be directly executed. So for all these other systems, you always have to jump through some hoops to get executable code. So you actually get the binary, which you can then ship to clients. Uh, in Idris, it's very much optimized to writing code, maybe prove some things about it, but then you can actually put it through a compiler and then uh, have it run. And of course, there are a lot of more tools. So there's ACL2, there's PVS, and there are many, many tools there. And I have to admit, I can't really tell you much about it because I have a very superficial understanding of these tools only. So everything I say would probably be wrong. I think there are some very good papers which can give an overview of these systems. But I think one could easily spend multiple hours talking about all the difference between these proof systems. But in the end, their, their goal is so you want to be able to get the machine to check proofs for you so that you don't make mistakes and you can be reasonably certain that the stuff you proved is actually correct. Okay, and that, sound, and that sounds good because it helps give a picture of where this fits in in the general ecosystem of, I guess, provers. And so as you get in, what part are you working on? You're doing your PhD. You're working with Isabel and on Isabel. What kind of stuff are you actually looking at specifically? I'm working on improving the code generation I've mentioned. So as I said, you can write programs in Isabel and specify them in any way you want. You can write recursive functions, data types, anything you would use in Haskell or Scala. And then you can tell the system, please export code in, let's say, ML. And then you actually have to pretty print that program. So it will generate you a file called program.ml or whatever you ask for on your hard drive, and then you have to call the compiler on it, and then you get a program. So the problem is that you have proven all your awesome theorems about your implementation in Isabel, and then you have to generate this as a file, and then you have to trust the ML compiler that it actually compiles the file correctly. And we all know that compilers may have bugs, and in fact, compilers have quite a lot of bugs because they're very complex pieces of software. 
And my goal is essentially to get rid of that middleman, essentially, and have Isabel be able to directly produce something executable and to verify the pros of that. So you write your program in Isabel, and then you ask my hypothetical new code generator, say, please give me a program, and then it will do some things. And all the things it does are now verified. And of course, I have not invented this. It's actually very difficult to invent things these days in computer science. So someone has done this before at Cambridge, and they have a similar thing for Hull 4, which is another prover. I think I mentioned it. And they have a compiler, which is verified, which takes ML code and actually compiles it down to x86, so just normal assembly. And the whole pipeline is essentially verified. And I'm trying to make a front end for that system for Isabel so that you can do the same thing in Isabel. Of course, I'm trying to improve their methodology, but I'm still working on it. So if I understood that right, is taking a step back and saying, instead of compiling to an intermediate language, which is what it does now, you're going straight to the bytecode, essentially, for whatever operating system you want to target is the goal. Not for whatever, but just for specifically x86. But I guess you could say that. So you want to have front-to-back verification, essentially. So you have a high-level system where you can write your program to reverse lists or whatever it is what you want. And then without any gap in verification, so you want the full verified pipeline down to x86 executable code. Okay, sorry. When I said anything you want, it was over-exaggerated, but being something like maybe a Windows or a Linux or an OS X versus some of the more obscure operating systems, but some of the common ones that you can now target that then, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. That's the ultimate goal here. Of course, as always, every PhD student can confirm to you the first goal of the PhD student is to actually get something working and maybe publish a paper about it and then maybe make it useful and actually build a tooling around it. And I'm still in the make it work phase. So, of course, the ultimate goal is that it's just essentially like a push button solution. So you press a button and then you will get a program out of it. But I'm currently not that far yet, but I'm getting closer. Is this one of those things where this is done in Isabel itself? So the Isabel is self-compiling down to the machine language for an x86 computer where what you're writing is you're writing in Isabel or you're at the point where you're writing it in the Scala and ML? No, I'm actually writing this in Isabel. So it's a regular extension of the system without me having to touch the source code of the system. So you were able to take advantage of all of Isabel's proving in the stuff that you're doing as well then. Yes, that's the advantage, right? And that sounds really nice that you, you're working on a language meant for proving it and you can take advantage of the proofs instead of just having to resort back to Scala or Haskell where you get the weaker proofs from just types. Yeah. So this is one of the features which actually sets Isabel, which is very focused. So Isabel is very focused on that. And I think other languages or other systems are trying to move into that direction as well. So there's a new theorem prover called Lean. And this one is written in C++. And it's also got the surface language. So you can write your proofs in a nice language. You don't have to do anything in C++. And they also have this notion of tactics. So these small routines which can prove your stuff. And they used to be written in C++, and now they're implementing a facility where you can write your tactics in Lean itself. 
So it's the same kind of idea that you don't have to drop down to the nitty-gritty details of the system. And I think that's very nice because it makes theory improving much more user-friendly. So back in the day, like 20 years ago, when, when Isabel was new, users not only had to know about how proving works, they also had to know about how Isabel works, how the implementation works. And now you have all these systems which give you a nice language. So you basically have to know how proving works, you have to know how the syntax works, but you don't have to concern yourself with implementation details of the underlying systems. And there's a couple of things there I want to unpack a little bit more. Some of it for people who've never heard of this kind of stuff and is new to them to establish what they are. And then maybe a little bit more for people who are familiar with it that they can identify where it falls in. So those two things are, you mentioned tactics a little bit. So I'd like to dig in a little bit there. And then you also mentioned the proving strategies a couple of times. So probably after we get into tactics or maybe before, depending on which one you think sets the better ground is the proving strategy as well. Because my understanding is there's a whole bunch of fields of research about different kinds of proving strategies and where Isabel falls in with that. So with those two things and you're being more familiar, can you set some groundwork about what both of those mean and feel free to take whichever one first? Right. So I think it makes sense to talk about proof strategies first. So you have to distinguish between two streams in the theory improving communities. You have the ITP part and the ATP part. And the ITP part means interactive theory improving, which is what Isabel and Agna and all these other systems are. And then there's ATP, which is called automated theory improving. And there are a couple of quite popular tools there. So some people might have heard about SET3, which is this Microsoft research project. And it's being used, for example, in FSTAR, an experimental programming language from Microsoft as well. So the difference is that in ITP systems, you as the user have to guide the proof. So if you want to prove any kind of proposition, you have to tell the system how to do it. And the system will check your proof, but it has no clue how to do it on its own. In the ATP systems, you tell it what it knows. So you tell it the axioms, you tell it the proposition, and then it tries to figure it out on its own. And it might give you a trace of what it did in the end, but it might also say, I have no idea what's going on. It might not give you a proof. It might not give you a counterexample. It might just time out, for example. So essentially, if you look at the textbook in maths and you see some proofs, then you will always see the first sentence of a proof is it says, We are going to prove this by induction. We are going to prove this directly. We are going to prove this by contradiction or any kind of things like that. So let's pick proof by contradiction as an example. So let's say you have a lemma which says there is no biggest prime. So proof by contradiction would be assume there is a biggest prime and then you try to derive a contradiction from that. And in ITP systems, you have to tell the system, I want to do this proof by contradiction now. And in an ATP system, it will try to figure this out on its own. And of course, there are advantages and disadvantages for both approaches. So in the ATP systems, of course, it's nice because you as the user, you don't need to have an idea of what's going on. You can just rely on the system to figure it out. On the other hand, of course, it's less powerful because it might not be able to figure out. In the ITP systems, however, you need to think about how to prove it. But in the end, if you have an idea, it will be able to validate that idea. And of course, that's not a clear distinction between ITP and ATP, because 
most of the ITP systems are able to talk to ATP systems. So if at one point you're stuck in Isabel, there's a tool which is literally called Sledgehammer. And Sledgehammer will try to somehow massage the proof in a way that the ATP systems can understand it. And then run, for example, set three on the problem and then extract the proof and then kind of check that it did the right thing. So in the end, you can have a bit of both. So you can try to guide the system and saying, okay, I want to do proof by contradiction. And now you figure out the details. That's the idea behind proof strategies, essentially. And for a little bit of clarification of things there, I've heard of things such as unification and disjunction. Is that essentially the induction and contradiction or is that something else? Or am I completely conflating two different terms to apply to something that doesn't even apply? No, unification is just a part of automated proof search. So unification basically just means that you have two different terms and these terms contain variables and you try to make these terms equal by inserting something for the variables. So it's, it's essentially so all the systems have unification in some way implemented, right? And disjunction is just if you try to prove one or the other thing and you don't exactly know what of them, which one of those is true. So you essentially have to try out different things. So you say you have to prove either P or Q. So systems will usually try to prove one or the other and do backtracking if one of them fails. So both of these things are very low level and all the systems have kind of unification and all these basic things implemented. But you as the user, you don't usually have to talk about them, not even in ITPs. Okay. And then you mentioned the induction and contradiction in some of these things and specifying them. Is that you just specify or do you actually write different styles of proofs based off one or the other? So sometimes you have proof where you have to combine multiple strategies. So induction is essentially just say, if you have a function which is recursive on lists, so let's say you have the reverse function on lists. So you would usually define that function by saying, well, the reverse of the empty list is the empty list again. And if you have the reverse of a list which contains at least one element, so you take the head and the tail and reverse the tail and you know append the head, so just a standard definition, then you would usually write proofs about this by induction over the list. And induction is just a fancy term, which means you follow the recursive structure of the function you wrote. So if you make a proof by induction, it just means you prove something for the base case, like for the empty list. Then in the next step, you assume something for a list with length n, and then you prove the property for a list which is one longer than that, so n plus one. And sometimes in during that, you also need contradiction proofs, or sometimes you just have to do the contradiction first and then do induction. So these are kind of two orthogonal concepts which you can mix and match however your proof requires it. And so it sounds like that's part of the way you write the proof. You don't just say, here's a proof that is the reverse of a reverse of a list equals the list. Prove it and give a hint of use induction or disjunction. It is the reverse of a reverse of a list equals the list. And here's some of the cases for how you prove it, either by manually outlining disjunction or conjunction then. So if you're, if you're using ATPs, so these automated systems, you would just write down what you want. And some of them are actually smart enough to figure out the induction themselves. Some of them aren't. In the ITPs, like Isabel and, and Korg and Arta and all the others, you actually have to write down, do an induction over this specific variable now. Those systems will not figure out 
the induction variable for you. They will not figure, so for example, if there are multiple variables involved, so most non-trivial properties have multiple variables in them. So it won't be able to figure that out on itself. But if you have a simple property like this, reversing a list twice, then in Isabel, you might be able to just write down induction on the list and then do simplification and then that's done. And in some other systems, you have to do a little bit more work. But the basic idea is that in these ITPs, the idea is that you as the user, you give the high level structure. So you, as you would explain to a person, and then you would the system would fill out the boring details for you. Of course, that's the idea. It's not always the case in reality. So sometimes it's like not explaining the proof to a person. It's like explaining a proof to a five-year-old person. So you, sometimes you have to be very precise and very detailed. But in the end, the idea is basically the same. So you try to give the outline to the system, and then the system will do the boring steps automatically. But in the end, you always have to give it some sort of guidance because it can't figure out everything on its own. I think that helps solidify some of the stuff in my head. Because my best guess is trying to equate it roughly to what I, at a very high level, understand about something in the QuickCheck family of provers, whether or not it's Haskell's or one of the others, but that style, and then prologue kind of stuff where you're outlining the constraints, and then as well comparing it back to middle school, high school math, where you're having to outline and document the mathematical proofs through geometry where a squared plus b squared equals c squared now go prove that and here's all the steps that you use to do the proofs and trying to figure out on which side of the extremes that falls into so i think that starts to help give a better picture of where isabel fits in and then with tactics i'm just making a guess here does that mean that those are essentially kind of like functions that you've pulled out that represent subparts of a proof. So if I need to prove two lists concatenated or something, whatever that is, that I can say, here's a generalized way to prove this stuff and it becomes reusable, or is that something else? I think that's kind of a good uh, intuition about it. So tactics are essentially programs which work on your proofs. So you're one level up, right? So you have your program which does actual work, like reversing lists. And then to prove things about it, you have functions which are one level on top. So you run these functions on your proof, essentially. And tactics essentially help you fill out the boring details. So I said you have to give the rough items, and then the system fills out the details. And tactics are essentially the workhorse of these systems. So one example of a tactic is simplification. It's just what it says on the tin. So a tactic is able to figure out that when you write n plus zero, it's actually the same as n, right? This would be a tactic which would figure out arithmetic or a tactic which would be able to figure out that n plus n is the same thing as two times n and all these sorts of things. And of course, there are many more complicated tactics than that. And I mentioned earlier this project of one of my coworkers, which would allow you to write algorithms in a very abstract way and then refine it to an imperative program. And this is also using tactics. So essentially, my coworker, he wrote a lot of complicated tactics, which would be able to figure out how to express a program in a different way. So you have, I mentioned this, uh, you pick an element from a set, this is what you want, and then the tactic would figure out how to do that. So essentially, 
yeah, I guess you could describe it as reusable functionality, which helps you write your proofs more efficiently by filling out the boring details. And you also mentioned lemmas, which, if I'm remembering right, is something similar to a mini proof that you're able to pull back in. Because if this thing holds, then I can essentially use inherent proof there or something else. And similar, I guess, do those fall in with tactics of using other proofs as subproofs or corollaries? And where does that fall in if I'm remembering my geometry and algebra and calculus right? So lemmas are just helper proofs. So in the same way you would use helper functions in a bigger function and compose them together. So logically speaking, a lemma is just a theorem and the corollary is also a theorem and a preposition is also a theorem. But in the end, mathematics has used this terminology to mean like a lemma is something which is maybe interesting, but it's not the main result. And you use it to establish some preliminaries. And then in the end of your stuff, you give a theorem. For example, there's no biggest crime. And this may use all the different helper lemmas you defined earlier. So it's just, in fact, in Isabel, if you write down lemma and if you write down theorem, it does exactly the same thing. It's just a different name to tell the reader, okay, if I write a lemma, it's not that important. It's some helper result, some intermediate result. And then a theorem is the actual interesting thing. Okay. And I wasn't sure when you were describing the tactics about like reduction of saying n plus zero is the same as n if that was falling under some of those lemmas or other theorems and tactics were one of those or how interchangeable those were. So essentially, a lemma is something the user writes. So if you want a lemma, I have to write that down explicitly. And of course, I can prove that n plus zero is equal to n by hand. So there is the field of research, which is called decision procedures. And the decision procedure is essentially just the thing which is able to solve some lemmas automatically. So you could also view tactics as, you could also de describe tactics as lemma producing things. So tactics are able to give you lemmas on the fly. So you could either write down lemma n plus zero equals to n and n plus one equals to one plus n and all these kind of things. And you could prove all these things. Or you could use a tactic which is able to come up with these things on the fly immediately because it's very trivial to do so. So I guess you could say a lemma is a special case of a tactic because you have to write it down manually and you have to prove it. And the tactic is able to give you all sorts of lemmas of a specific kind, which you can use anywhere you want to. Okay. And I think that gives a better understanding in my head of where all these words are falling from being outside, proving your work in this sense of a number of years on at this point and trying to remember back and put some reasoning to what I remember or misremember in this case. So we've covered a lot of topics. We're getting close to our end of time. What haven't we covered on Isabel that we should be letting people know about and leaving them with before we wrap up today's conversation? Well, I think so many people might look at the website of Isabel and might click around and try to figure out what all this is about. And I just want to say it's completely normal to be overwhelmed by all the terminology. So if you just look at the homepage, there's a lot of things. There's It mentions some highlights about the systems and Many, many words are unknown, and also I don't know all the things which are on the website because it's a very big system. So if you're interested in, in learning about this, there's a book which is called Programming Improving in Isabel, 
And you can find it if you click on the documentation link. And this is a much more gentle introduction. So as for any programming language, if you learn it for the first time, if you see it for the first time, it's very overwhelming. And for Isabel, that's even more so because the system is so big, it's over 20 years old. So it has accumulated many features. So the thing I want to really stress here is that it's completely normal to have no idea what Isabel is, to see that there's a lot of things and that's completely fine. Don't let that hold you back from looking into it and maybe look at one of the pieces of documentation there. And that would be your recommendation then for how to get started, because that was going to be one of the follow-up questions was how to get started in Isabel and what's the best place to go track down. So there's unfortunately on the website, there's a thing called tutorial. And don't use the tutorial because it's really outdated. Use the programming improving book. And you should be able to follow that if you have some basic understanding of functional programming. And it's quite hands-on, so it gives a lot of examples, and you can follow along there. And if you work through this book, you should be able to get some basic things done with Isabel. Of course, there's much more, but I think it's a decent introduction to get an idea of what the system is capable of. And then are there any other details about Isabel that we haven't covered that you think we should hit on for people that might pique their curiosity. Yeah, actually, there's a big archive of proofs, which is just called Archive of Formal Proofs. And it's like, so in a programming language, you would call it somehow like a package repository. So it contains proofs people have done since 2004. So 2004 is when it got started. So it's essentially a collection of proofs people did with Isabella. And they're from all sorts of different areas from computer science and also from mathematics. So we have stuff about polynomials. We have stuff about data structures. We have also some security stuff. So proving that some programs don't leak information to an attacker or to malicious users or something like that. And there's quite a lot of interesting things there. There's even a formalization of Gödel's ontological proof of the existence of God. So Gödel at one point yeah, so this is a story for another time. You, you can read it or you can Google for it and you will find it. So it's essentially, it's trying to demonstrate that if you take some axioms, you can prove essentially anything you want if you add even more axioms, right? So Gödel at one point used that technique to prove the existence of God, essentially. And someone has formalized this proof in Isabel. Of course, caveat is that you have to agree with the axioms to trust it, and you also have to agree with the definition of God to trust this proof. And it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, this whole thing. And yeah, and it's got a lot of content. So there's 1.3 million lines of proof in this archive these days. And it's quite interesting. You can visit the website to see what people are doing with Isabel. And you will find that there's actually quite a diverse range of stuff people are doing with it. Well, this has been completely fantastic because I knew some of these things existed, but to hear more details about them and specific versions of them is always interesting to see what is out there and available to us if we decide it's something that makes sense to use. So I want to give you a giant thank you for that. But before we let you go, there's a couple of other things I got coming up is we talked about Isabel a lot. Is there anything else that you're working on that you want to make sure people know, whether it's directly related to Isabel or tangentially? Do you have any other appearances or just other stuff you want the audience to know about? So Isabel is what I do for work, but in my free time, I do a lot of Scala stuff. And I'm one of the 
co-founders of the Type Level Scala Initiative, which is an umbrella project for multiple sub-projects in the Scala functional programming community. And while I can't be there for the upcoming events, many people will be there from the Type Level community. So for example, there's the Lambda World Conference, which I think you've mentioned in one previous podcast announcement. So this is upcoming end of September. And there's going to be type-level Scala content there. So if you're interested in getting started with functional programming in Scala or learning more about it, feel free to check out one of the events. There's a list of events on our website. And then do you have a call to action for the listeners that you want them to take away after hearing this episode? Yeah, so the call to actions, I think, would be to maybe spend one or two hours looking at some Isabel documentation and try to figure out if it's something for you. And if not, that's fine. But you can maybe think about if you can apply some of the techniques which are being used there for your day-to-day programming. And I guarantee you, if you start thinking about your program as a mathematical thing where you can actually prove stuff about it and try to write your programs in a way that you can easily understand what's going on and that you could potentially prove things about it, you will see that this will actually improve the quality of your programs a lot. And that sounds like something that I'm going to have to do, especially after talking with you, is to take a deeper look to see what Isabel is all about and how it works. So with that, where can people find you to follow along with updates either from whatever's going on in your world, whether or not it's extra announcements about the type level stuff or updates on your progress with Isabel or just any other stuff that you're working on? Where can people find more about you and keep up to date with what's going on in your world? So virtually speaking, I tweet a lot. So my Twitter feed contains Scala content and Isabel content and of course, doc content as well. So I'm going to be at an ITP conference this month. And this is in Nancy, France. And after that, I'm going to visit EPFL, which is a university in Switzerland. And it's the university which hosts Martin Odersky, who's the creator of Scala. Apart from that, I unfortunately can't be at any Scala conferences this year, which I'm very sad about because there are a lot of great Scala conferences coming up. But maybe next year again. But for this year, I've basically exhausted my conference budget. But if you want to follow along with some type-level Scala stuff, I recommend you look at the type-level website, go to events, and there will be a lot of like-minded functional programmers to be found there. And I'll get all these links included in the show notes from the previous stuff with your other side projects and all the places we can find you. So I'll make sure to get all those in the show notes so people can have a nice place to go find more about what you're doing. Sure. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you very much, Lars, for taking your time to join me today. This has been enlightening and just another example of showing how much more I have to learn and how much is out there that I didn't even know existed. So thank you for taking time, showing me other parts of the functional programming segment that I didn't even know was out there, and piping up on Twitter to volunteer that and be a guest about bringing something that is not one of those common languages so we can get more perspective about everything and feed that back into whatever work we're doing on a daily basis. So thank you very much for taking your time, and I'm glad you were able to talk about Isabel. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been very interesting, and 
yeah, always happy to spread the word. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.